For the folks designing kitchen tools at OXO, inspiration can come from anywhere. Take, for example, the patented brake design on their salad spinner. Senior product engineer Mac Moore explains. The area of the pad that comes down on the ring is larger, so the braking force is stronger. The second really cool feature is that the brake doesn't squeak. The inspiration for that came from actually the way that the brakes on a bicycle contact the rim. Spin your greens dry, quietly. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better. Guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. They say that the most important discoveries were made out of true need, like fire, the moldboard plow, vaccines. Now, I'm going to add one more to that list that's not on too many others, fermented beverages. Okay, I'm biased here. I've been brewing beer for decades, and I think that whomever discovered all those thousands of years ago that drinking a funky-smelling mixture that was festering in a hot jar should have their own day named after them. Or at the very least, let's throw them a parade. Fermented beverages kept people alive. It was often safer to drink meat or wine instead of water. Fermentation was sort of a preservation for foods as well. You've got miso, sauerkraut, kimchi, and even cheese. So all of this is to say that I feel pretty well-versed in the whole world of fermentation. Or I thought I was. Until I heard about a beverage from Korea that was a little fizzy, a bit boozy, and had a tart, tangy flavor. It's called makgeolli. And as I found out, makgeolli was so much more. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. A friend introduced me to Korean TV dramas. Uh, she kept trying to persuade me to watch them, and I was resistant. But in the end, I submitted, and I just got hooked. And this is independent audio producer and Koreaphile, Diane Hope. But it wasn't just the dramas themselves. Uh, I enjoyed the stories and the plot lines, but I was totally captivated by the culture, the language, the country, just everything about it, really. I got really curious. You know, these dramas featured sleek, stylish people. There were fast car-driving adventures, dark urban jungles, cheery Korean pop music, an insane work ethic, close-knit families and strong friendships. And it all seemed to be cemented at regular intervals with a lot of um, hearty eating and drinking. So even allowing for a bit of dramatic license, I thought, oh, South Korea just looks really intriguing. It looked like a lot of fun. What I particularly liked was the uh, almost inevitable scenes at some point in a 20-episode K-drama where um, something goes wrong with a love life and the main characters end up in these little pavement street cafes that are covered in plastic tarpaulins and they're sitting at little makeshift tables and chairs, usually uh, getting fairly drunk. And the beverage of choice always depicted in the K-dramas was this clear fluid that looked pretty much like lighter fuel. You know, people would drink it with a grimace on their face. This would be soju. 
I eventually decided after a couple of years of watching K-dramas and learning a little bit of the Korean language that I was going to go to Korea. And I got a language exchange uh, friend and mentioned to that friend that I was kind of curious to try soju. And this person said, oh, but you've got to try makoli. And I didn't even quite catch what he was saying. I, I didn't recognize the word. Um, and I thought, what is that? If you do a bit of research on the internet, you can find out straight away it's got this hugely historical lineage going back hundreds of years. Why had I never heard of it? We've all heard of sake and Asian drinks like that. I was convinced for a drink with that kind of history, there just had to be more to it. First of all, I kind of did a little bit of research and then I talked to my Korean friend, Shi Woo, and this is what he told me. It's unusual for me to hear foreigners say makoli. So I think foreigner doesn't know about makoli because it's our traditional alcohol. My father liked it. When I was young, my father enjoyed it every night when he came back home after working. And my grandfather liked it. Also, my grandmother's liked it. Yes, the old people enjoyed it. It's common. It's common drink. We can buy makoli anywhere in convenience store. Anyway, it's not special. I tried makoli first time when I was freshman in university. Five days a week. <laughs> Every freshman in Korea play a lot. It's not strong. Yes, I like it, but I usually have soju, not makoli. We believe makoli makes us headache after drinking. And makoli is too sweet for me, too sweet. Most of Korea people think that makoli is low-level, low-level alcohol. We can see makoli anywhere in Korea easily. So yeah, we think it's not special, right? right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Shiwoo is providing a lot of really good context here, but I think he's describing something that sounds a lot like the cheap beer that I used to drink sometimes too much of in college. And I would not call that a ringing endorsement at all. I felt the same way, Bridget, but I was undaunted in my quest to find out more. So uh, I got on the plane to Seoul with my sound kit and also a suitable ringtone on my phone. Just like a character in a Korean TV drama, I was staying in a little rooftop apartment in Jongno-gu for 600 years. This was the centre of the Joseon dynasty, site of several palaces which housed the kings and queens. I could even see the current president's house, known as Cheongwadae, or the Blue House, South Korea's version of the White House, from my roof terrace. Down at street level, I found 24-hour convenience stores on just about every street corner, all selling makoli. For a drink you've never heard of outside Korea, once you're in the country, it's everywhere. As my friend Shi Woo had said, it was cheap and cheerful, just a few dollars a bottle, those bottles being the plastic variety you'd expect to get soda in. Modest sampling revealed a not unpleasant, vaguely fizzy, sweet-sour sort of a drink. But I couldn't help feeling there was something more to discover. 
The following evening, I plunged down a maze of small alleys, this time on my way to meet my guide to Makali Master Brewing, for a taste of the real brew and a lesson in Korean history. So Makali has a, a certain place culturally uh, about when to drink it, and it's always, always when it starts to rain. Somewhat incongruously, that Korean booze expert is Australian. Julia Meller is an unlikely advocate for Makali. Having moved to South Korea on a whim just over a decade ago, she was struggling to find an affordable alternative to her beloved Australian wine. She found relief in the obscure world of the Korean brewing industry. I'm fluent in, in booze, <laughs> that's for sure. And did I mention, the rain is torrential. What most Korean people will do will run to a makgeolli bar and they will have pajeon or bindadok, which are both pancakes that have been fried in oil. Why is makgeolli so iconic in rainy weather? For the most part, people say that it's because when you fry the pancake, the oil, that kind of spitting sound of the oil, mimics the sound of rain. And so it's that comfort food where you want this hot steaming pancake and this cold tin bowl of makgeolli uh, to make you feel better for the fact that the rain is so gloomy. And you make that noise, you go, ah, delicious, it's so good. Just do, what's, what is this noise? This is sort of aspiration. This puzzled me so much when I first arrived, but it is a sound of enjoyment. Uh, I was confused because it sounds like you don't like it, but actually it's like a kind of sound often made by, I guess, middle-aged men. Uh, it's to say, oh wow, this is really delicious and it's really refreshing and I really appreciate it. And we've got a very rainy evening, but it turns out it's the perfect weather for Michael. Perfect atmosphere. We're, and now we're outside some traditional houses, it's dimly lit, so it's a great atmosphere. We arrive on foot and under umbrellas in front of an unremarkable front door. So this is called Newejuga. This is the home of, we affectionately call him the godfather of Korean alcohol. Uh, everyone in this industry has learned from him in one way or another. Uh, and here is where the only place that you can taste something that he himself has made. If I was feeling that there was anything slightly sinister in this dark back alley, about to drink a beverage made by the Korean godfather of home brewing, ring the, bell. the doorbell chime immediately breaks the spell. And it becomes rapidly apparent that Julia speaks extremely fluent Korean. <laughs> the godfather himself is not at home, and his wife had not realised we were coming. But she welcomes us warmly and plies us with tasty homemade sujebi, roughly made rice cake soup and side dishes while we wait for the makali. On the wall is a vast array of jars of different colours, samples of every fermented concoction the master's been working on over the past 30 years. Oh, a big bowl's just arrived with a huge ladle. And some side dishes. And some side dishes. You know, what is makgeolli? Usually gets served in a, in a nice big bowl with a scoop. <laughs> you know, drinking is very communal. Everything is drunk together. So cheers. Yes. Now, that has a real liveliness to it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like an effervescence. It's a very subtle one. And that's what you're tasting is actually the live yeast. When you pasteurize 
uh, Makkali, you lose that part of it. And it's such a really defining characteristic of Makkali is to have it a little bit fizzy, a little bit alive. There's a mouth texture going on with it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, yes. tingling. Yeah, and it's and that's the, also the acidity here too. So it's very clean. It's very crisp, and it's uh, got a very refreshing balance to it. Whoa, you're talking about tingling, balanced acidity, sensations on the tongue. This all sounds more like a, a pretty serious wine tasting at Napa Valley than that cheap and cheerful convenience beverage that you had tried when you first arrived. <laughs> oh, it was a whole different drink, Bridget. The commercial Makali I'd sampled was very likely heat pasteurized to give it a longer shelf life. The uh, Godfather's unpasteurized Makali tasted very different, tinglingly smooth, with a sweetness that was a lot less pronounced than the convenience store brands. The overall effect is much more subtle and wine like, and uh, Julia explained to me that the centuries long process Koreans have used to brew alcohol, which they call sul. Sul is made with rice, water, and nuruk. Nuruk is a wild fermentation starter, so it's what makes it different from Japanese sake or Vietnamese sakko and things like that. It is a wild yeast that is usually made out of ground wheat. So you add a bit of water so it coheses together. Actually, you put it in a frame and put it on the floor and you step on it. Uh, and you use your body weight to pack it into a really tight cake. Usually you cover it with socks or uh, some kind of material. So you, clean ones, I Yes, hope. clean ones. You don't want foot flavor. Once it's in a really nice tight cake, usually in a circle or a square, you ferment that at hot temperatures. All of the molds and the enzymes and the yeast from the air will settle onto that cake and inoculate it the whole cake. Then you dry it out and you cure it in the sun to get rid of some of that moldy uh, aroma and you break it up into little pieces and that is your fermentation starter. Now, nuruk will change rice into sugar and there's yeast inside the nuruk that changes the sugar to alcohol. It's called multi-parallel fermentation and it is magical. Well, Koreans are absolute masters of fermentation. I had never heard of this multi-parallel fermentation at all. That sounds like a completely different level. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And part of what's so cool about it is that you mix rice, water, and this nuruk starter together. And the nuruk pretty much does everything for you. Julia explained why that's exactly what makes makali the perfect homebrew. In contrast to things like wine or beer, where you need to have a bit more specific controls, more specific in environments and equipment, makkali and different kinds of Korean sur is all done at home, uh, in the comfort of your kitchen. If you can steam rice, you can make alcohol. And so it doesn't have to be a Korean kitchen, it could be an American Of course, kitchen. it can be in any kitchen. Any country in the world you could make this as alcohol. So what I always think is so beautiful about it is that it's very rudimentary and very simple. Yeah, making makkali involves just three ingredients, rice, water, and a starter you can make from dried ground wheat and a pair of clean socks. And you can do it in your own kitchen. Well, I'd argue that procuring clean socks might disqualify me from being able to make this in the first place. But I got to ask if it's so simple to make makkali at home without any specialty gear, why is it so hard to find the really good stuff? 
I know, Bridget, that was my question. So it was time to head back out onto the rainy streets of Seoul and make our way to the next Master Macaulay Brewer and start getting some answers to that question. What's this restaurant called? This is called Changjae We're in a hanok, an old traditional Korean house of a style first designed and built in the 14th century. Other than a little lighted sign outside, there's really nothing from the alleyway to tell you that this is the location for something special. Not until you're inside and catch sight of a framed black and white photo of someone who looks like a Tai Chi master sat cross-legged in front of a steaming mound of fermenting rice, do you get the hint that you're in the home of another venerable master of ancient Korean brewing tradition. The venerable master emerges from the kitchen with a signature huge bowl, a ladle, and the obligatory collection of spicy side dishes. So cheers. Cheers. How would you describe this makuli that we're drinking now? In terms of the alcohol percentage, because he does this by himself here, it's generally around about 10% uh, alcohol. But the balance is there. You've still got that sweetness, you've got a teeny bit of acidity, and you've got that nice, lively mouthfeel, but it's very cold and it's very refreshing. Very refreshing. And even though it's, it's you know, a rainy night, it feels like the right thing to be doing. Exactly. I would say the best characteristic of this makli is that it's clean. It's very crisp and it's got a very refreshing kind of balance to it. I think crisp is a good word. It's almost like biting into a, an apple. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's funny you should say apple actually because uh, in the fermentation starter, Nuruk, one of the natural flavors that come out is green apple. So sometimes people do say, oh, it's a little bit, bit apple-y, a bit like melon. The molds that appear on the Nuruk is what will change the flavor of the brew. So everything you're tasting it's just rice and water and the fermentation starter. All of those different notes that you taste, those different flavors, all come from whatever mold was being used. And he makes his own nuruk here as well. The bottom layer is called takju, which means milky alcohol. The top layer is golden clear. It's beautifully, beautifully golden clear. This is called chongju or also yakju. Chongju and yakju was the drink of the royal kings and queens. So back in the day, back in the, the Joseon dynasty, all the noble class would drink the golden clear chongju and the leftover takju, they would add water to it and give it to everybody else. So that chongju, that top clear bit, it sounds a little bit like it's the champagne of Korea. Even more than that, um, it was very much a status symbol in traditional Korean society for centuries, distinguishing who you are based on what you're drinking. And incidentally, if you distill chongju, that's what soju is. Uh, traditional soju comes from distilling that top chongju. Chongju is the point of Korean alcohol making, as Julia puts it. What we have really truly lost is the whole point of Korean alcohol making. And it wasn't makgeolli, it was chongju. Every person of note or worth that came to your house, you would give them chongju because that was your symbol to say that you are a, an honored guest because I'm giving you something uh, that is considered the top end of alcohol. It's like skimming the cream off them. Exactly, no. but you can get quite a lot of cream. <laughs> it's quite a large volume. Uh, and then because Korean culture is that we don't waste anything, we would add water to that bottom milky layer and then share that out with everybody else so that nothing was wasted. 
Nowadays, we're kind of working backwards. Nowadays, makgeolli is the most popular uh, because we water it down to 6%. We don't take the Cheongju off anymore. We just drink the makgeolli. Uh, and it's kind of a lost art to what that true Cheongju is. <gasps> so we're getting Cheongju and soju. So which is which? So this is Cheongju. The yellow one is Cheongju. Oh, you were just talking about it. Yes, here just it now. Is. Wow. So... What you basically got is three very distinct and different beverages, but they're all made from fermented rice. Right. And all three come out of the same process. So we've got makali, which is the sediment layer. So um, there's a lot of excess rice and starch in that. That's what gives it the milky, cloudy appearance. And then there's the chongju, which has a lemony colour and is more crisp and appley, wine-like. And then there's soju, which is distilled from the Chongju and is completely clear. And there are three totally different categories of drink. You've got a distillate, a kind of wine or a sherry-like drink, and then you've got something that's a little bit more like beer. It's got that light fermentation. But it all is part of the same process with the same three ingredients. You've got rice, water, and the nuruk. That's right. And really, the only thing preventing you from making them right in your own kitchen are the distillation laws of your particular country. Is it realistic to make all of these at home or just the macaroni? It depends on your country of residence. If you live in America, then these are legally able to do at home. But distillation, home distillation is illegal uh, in the States. So unfortunately, you cannot make soju easily at home. But if you live in New Zealand, you can. When you brew, you choose how you want to drink it. So after you've filtered it, if you put it in the fridge and it separates, you can drink the Cheongju. Or maybe that day you don't want to drink the Cheongju. You can mix it all up and drink it as what we call Wonju, which is original alcohol, which is a high ABV makgeolli. Or if high ABV is not your game, then you can add 50% water and make buckling. So it's very versatile and you can choose whether you want to drink like a commoner or like a king. Exactly. It's up to you. It's up to you. You can always drink like kings. <laughs> so before my brain got too befuddled with the beauty of this ancient brewing system, I wanted to have Julia explain the history of Makali and its other derivatives. After the break, Diane gets a quick run through Korean history and a major clue as to why makgeolli became downgraded from a drink of kings to a cheap way for the masses to get through the day. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill Grain Quiz. And today I've got a really special guest here in the studio with me. He is a grain expert. He's my colleague. And I'm going to call him a bread and pizza expert, too. It's Andrew Janjikian. Hello. Hello. Are you an expert on flour? I think you know it all about it. I, I am pretty fond of flour, and I know a little bit. You might even call me a flour child. Nice. Nice. Well, okay. Do you know whole wheat flour? That is the question today, and I'm going to find out. What's the difference between whole wheat flour and, say, all-purpose flour? Well, the difference between whole wheat flour and all-purpose flour or other white flours is that in white flours, all you have is the endosperm, the sort of core of the grain itself. In whole wheat flour, you get both bran and the endosperm, which are filled with both nutrition and lots of flavor. I love it. You are the original flour power, I think. So Bob's Red Mill organic whole wheat flour is 100% stone ground from hard red spring wheat with all of the nutrients from the bran and germ still intact. 
Learn more at bobsredmill.com. You know when you're cooking something like chicken or fish and you need to wash your hands, but you don't want to touch the faucet because then you got to clean the faucet? Kohler has thought of this. Their faucets have something called response touchless technology. You simply wave your hand or a utensil through the sensor window to turn it on and off like magic. It's really convenient and hygienic because it reduces the chances of spreading germs around the kitchen. You and your family are going to be nice and safe. The touchless sensor is on the underside of the spout and turns on and off in 20 milliseconds. Perfect if you don't have a second to spare. And if you forget to turn it off, the faucet's going to shut itself off after four minutes. No batteries are necessary. It connects to your AC power. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Sure, everyone knows that sous vide is great for cooking steak and eggs, but it can do so much more. And that's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. I went into the test kitchen to find out what my colleagues do with theirs. This roast beef that we have, we set it to a really low temperature and we let it go overnight. The collagen breaks down, the meat gets super, super tender. Basically prime rib, but a quarter of the price. Polenta grits, normally that's a very hands-on dish. You have to like stir it a lot. Sous vide is pretty cool for it because it's hands-off. I actually have a couple of things in the sous vide bath right now, this very moment as we speak. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. Before the break, Diane Hope was taking us with her on a tour through the back streets of Seoul to discover the secrets of a mystical drink called makgeolli, a drink universally known in Korea and hardly heard of at all outside of that country, on a quest to discover whether there's something more to the cheap K-convenience store version, and why we Westerners have likely never heard of, let alone tasted, this most ancient of alcoholic beverages. I was speaking with Korean brewing industry aficionado and expat Australian, Julia Meller. She said that to understand Makali, I had to understand Korean history. We were sitting in Tangjian Nabi, a modest restaurant on one of the myriad backstreet mazes of Seoul, in that most traditional of Korean buildings, a hanok. In the larger cities of South Korea, only small clusters of these quaint, clay-walled, tile-roofed dwellings remain. Many didn't survive the devastation of the Korean War, or they were demolished to make way for cheap mass housing, much needed after that conflict. And it turns out, the physical history of the Hanok has more than a few parallels with the history of Korean brewing and makgeolli making. Although that likely started on the Korean peninsula in the first century BC, we'll skip several hundred years. To start in the Joseon dynasty, stretching from the 1300s to the turn of the 20th century, the Joseon era was characterised by Confucianism, an emphasis on art and creative industries, and a very heavily top-down social hierarchy. Julia told me that a big impact of that hierarchy was the banning of independent home brewing and selling of makgeolli. Brewing and selling sir or makgeolli was illegal. Usually it was by King's decree that there would be one brewer that would be controlling the production supply for the king in the royal courts. 
but if you were outside of the court, you couldn't just make and sell. That is officially. <laughs> right, officially, because we all know how well official prohibition goes when it comes to alcohol, right? Exactly. And on the basis that prohibition doesn't really work anywhere, Julia tells me that people decided to quietly, secretly make it at home. Being in the home, it was, of course, a woman's job. She would pass down her recipes to her daughters, and they would instruct their daughters and their daughters, rather than having to make big batches to supply lots of people. Brewing inside the home meant that those hard-working women were free to use good quality, short-grain glutinous rice and slower fermentation times, which made for a much higher quality makali. But when the Japanese invaded Korea in 1910, their policy was one of cultural eradication, and that included home brewing. None of those recipes were written down. It was an oral tradition. So thousands of recipes disappeared. The second impact was they introduced a tax system. So it became a commercial entity with the Japanese occupation. But with this taxation system, it was actually centralized. So each neighborhood was awarded a license uh, and they would be the brewer of that region. So generally the people that got those licenses might've been Japanese or they might've been local class or they might've been people that were uh, in the good books with the occupation, but there was no free competition. Once they had that license, they were often brewing for a Japanese consumer because most of the people buying the booze was actually Japanese. So at this point, many breweries actually stopped using the Korean starter Nuruk and started using the Japanese fermentation starter called Ipko. With many brewers no longer using the wild Korean Nuruk starter in favor of a Japanese version with a single very specific strain, the flavor of makoli under Japanese occupation became a lot more predictable and monotone. And that occupation went up until World War II. 1945 was the end of the Japanese occupation. Then we had a beautiful five years of peace. <laughs> then Korean War started in 1950. Uh, 1950 to 1953, we then uh, had a decimated Korea. Alcohol at that point wasn't something of quality. It definitely had a role. It was tough to be in Korea during this reconstruction period. And so alcohol became something that was a way to relieve your stress you know, bond with your family, bond with your friends, but it wasn't about flavor. Then there was one more body blow to traditional Korean makgeolli brewing. Suddenly, in the mid-1960s, no rice. Well, so 1965 was a very severe rice famine. And during that time, all breweries were banned using rice because there was no rice to eat, and as rice is central to Korean cuisine, no rice, no meal. If there was no rice to eat, it made sense not to turn it into alcohol. So breweries had to turn to other starches. The most popular thing to use though was wheat flour because the American forces were providing a lot of wheat flour as a supplement to the famine. Artificial sweeteners are very prevalent in Korean makgeolli today, but this is why, because in that time, the fermentation that they were making wasn't really tasty because in wheat flour there's not a lot of sugar. So the artificial sweetener covers the flavor of whatever is happening underneath. So high quality makgeolli and homemade makgeolli have the superb advantage of not having artificial sweeteners. We're talking things like aspartame, which is probably the most common artificial sweetener used. 
Well, aspartame has such a distinctive metallic taste. You can really pick it out if it's in a beverage. And I would imagine that it would have taken away from the experience of the drink. Yeah, Julia agrees. And she explains that the issue with those artificial sweeteners is that they're a poor substitute for the lost flavor of the real makali. Rice band was lifted, uh, I believe, in 77 or late 70s. During that time, people were not developing alcohol. They were drinking something that had artificial sweeteners in it, and it was very sweet. So they developed a palate for something sweet, and the expectation is makalu should be sweet. So now that the rice ban has been lifted, the homebrew ban is lifted, and we are free to make whatever we want, we're dealing with a consumer that still doesn't understand the complexities of what true makalu is. So what we're drinking now, no artificial. No artificial sweeteners. For me, it's about respect for the fermentation. It's not to say that makali with artificial sweeteners is not drinkable. It is. And a lot of people enjoy it, and I think that's fine. But there is a reason why they were introduced, and there's a reason why we can move back to what it was intended to be. It's I absolutely love that Julia talks about a respect for the fermentation. There's something to that. And that really is the magic of the true original version of this brew. Yes, that's it. But there's more that makes the process of brewing makkali so magical. It's not just the lack of artificial sweeteners and careful brewing in small batches that makes the drink so unique. There's also the bugs on the hands of the brewer. Because, believe it or not, the personal microbiome of the brewer has its own special influence on how each batch of the drink turns out. So one thing that we have in Korean cuisine, this is not just unique to alcohol. Uh, Korean cuisine has something called son mat. Son means hand and mat means flavor. So it's literally hand flavor, but it really what it means is that we have microbiomes on our hands that are unique to us, just like a fingerprint. So if you and I make makgeolli together with exactly the same ingredients in exactly the same place, we will have very different alcohols because my bi- microbiome is different to your microbiome. So with when it comes to suru, we say the best brewers have the best hands. Uh, and it's something that really is so unique and iconic to you that no one else can re- replicate. So it really is like a fingerprint flavor. A hundred percent, a hundred percent a fingerprint flavor. And also what really, I guess, frustrates a lot of people, but I think is the best character of it, is that you can never make the same alcohol twice. Every time it's different, and it's different because your hands might have been different that day, or the environment where you brewed it was different that day, the nuruk was different, the rice, everything could be different. So there's something really satisfying about making a beautiful alcohol and then thinking, I may never make this ever, ever again. So I'm going to enjoy it so much more. This delicious unrepeatability means that just as you can never step in the same river twice, you can never brew exactly the same makkali twice. And there's the rub. How do you commercialise a product that behaves like a piece of musical improvisation? Consistency is just not in the language of makkali. Not to mention the difficulty of transporting a product that's actively fermenting long distances. Which brings us back to the original question. Why have those of us outside the Korean peninsula never heard of this mystical, complex, delicious drink? And the answer is that Makkali has weathered the slings and arrows of modern Korean history 
the prohibition of home brewing by the king during the Joseon dynasty, the Japanese occupation, the rice shortage, the use of subpar ingredients, and the introduction of artificial sweeteners to counteract the effect of subpar ingredients. But also, more simply, the same quality that makes makgeolli so lively and unique is the very reason it doesn't make good economic sense to export it overseas. It just doesn't have a long, stable shelf life. So, Diane, where does that leave us? Well, Bridget, I ask myself the same question. Is this all just one long, tragic Asian drama plot? This beautiful drink, which even many Koreans haven't enjoyed to its full potential, is it doomed to a few secret spots in Seoul's back alleys? Is it going to be always overshadowed and misrepresented by mass-produced convenience store knockoffs? Not necessarily, says Julia Meller. In the last, I'd say, five years, I'd say five, maybe six years, we're starting to see a shift into not just food, but other Korean traditional industries getting more respect from a younger generation, like a lot of people, that want to revive those traditions that were lost for 100 years. There's a lot of traditional industries that need to be revived and given their day in the sun, and now we can. We now need to start working on bringing that quality and integrity and respect for fermentation to really get it back to the level of quality of where it used to be. And so, do you think that this means that we'll all be drinking makgeolli soon? Well, the problem is, uh, lots of people don't even know that it exists. It's kind of the world's best-kept secret. And if people do find it, they're not getting access often to the really good quality stuff. But if you learn how to make it yourself, you'll have endless access to good quality makgeolli. And so I think that once people figure out how incredibly easy and fun and rewarding it is to make makgeolli in your own kitchen, the sky's the limit. That's independent audio producer Diane Hope. And you can hear more of her immersive, sound-rich documentaries at her website, dianehope.com. If you want to see some cool images from inside the homes of Korea's hidden makgeolli masters and find out more about Julia Miller and the Sewell Company, well, it's all up on our website, and that's www.americastestkitchen.com proof. Go check it out. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional sound design and scoring for this episode by Diane Hope. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmsted. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is Gangnam Style and Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Milk, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or write a review because it really helps other people find the show. 